Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. This week, we've got you covered on the primary election in Illinois and Roe v. Wade. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe has many Americans wondering, how did we get here? Legal historian Mary Ziegler explains that the fall of Roe was decades in the making. Her new book is called Dollars for Life, one of several that she's written on the politics of abortion. Ziegler is also a law professor at the University of California, Davis. You've written several op-eds about the Supreme Court's decision. Walk us through your thought process about this news. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the court's decision in some ways wasn't a surprise. Obviously, we had a leaked draft of the opinion Mm -hmm. in May. But I think it still comes as a shock because this was a decision um, that the Supreme Court really didn't have to make this quickly, as Chief Justice John Roberts himself, a conservative, pointed out. Uh, it didn't need to be this broad because the court is saying not only that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, but that our our entire way of thinking about our other constitutional rights is deserving of an overhaul. Um, so this was really, I think, a, a striking decision um, and one that will affect many people's views of the legitimacy of the court. So you say that the, the fall of Roe v. Wade reflects decades of organizing. When and mm-hmm. why did the anti-abortion movement start? Well, the anti-abortion movement predated Roe v. Wade, right? There was an anti-abortion movement as soon as states began to modify at all criminal laws on abortion. So, for example, by adding rape and incest exceptions, the anti-abortion movement opposed that. But um, And after Roe, initially, the anti-abortion movement fought for a constitutional amendment that would criminalize abortion in all states, so progressive as well as conservative states. And when it gave up on that, it was obviously because it had to, um, the movement turned instead to control of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the fight to control the Supreme Court um, changed lots of things about the way our democracy works. The anti-abortion movement helped to convince conservative voters that the Supreme Court was a major election issue, that regular people should care about the court when they go to the polls. Uh, The movement eventually got heavily involved in an existing fight to change rules on campaign finance, um, in particular to deregulate campaign spending, and all of which led to Citizens United and um, a flood of outside money, so non-party money in elections. Uh, a lot of that work also helped to weaken traditional leaders of the Republican Party and to make it easier for uh, populists, people like Donald Trump, um, to uh, gain power in that party. Mm. So so that's how the movement basically helped push the courts to the right? Uh, well, the movement helped push the courts to the right by trying to control the courts, right? So th- th- that how that the campaign finance connection to the courts worked was that in 1992, the movement realized that just getting Republicans elected wasn't going to work, right? The court had six conservatives on it, didn't overrule Roe anyway. So the movement tried to find new ways to influence the GOP, right? And one way to do that was with money. Um, Money could help get more Republicans elected. It could help buy the anti-abortion movement more influence in the GOP. Um, And it could give the movement more of an opportunity to say, 
this judge isn't ideologically pure enough. This judge isn't reliably conservative enough. This judge seems to faint in the the face of controversy. The movement wanted more judges like Clarence Thomas who were willing to do things even that were deeply unpopular. And by 2005, we began to see that having an effect. Of course, then George W. Bush nominated Harriet Myers. Mm-hmm. Um, social conservatives and others were not okay with that, and they managed to doom that nomination. That would have been unthinkable, I think, uh, even a decade before. So the movement managed to get more influence in the GOP in, in a variety of ways, but also through money. And we, we see that now, of course, the Republican Party relies more than ever on anti-abortion voters um, to get victories on election day. You write about the uh, intersection of abortion politics and campaign spending. Why is that significant? Well, it was significant because I think we often tend to think of Roe and abortion as being women's issues. And obviously that's true. People who can get pregnant are already being affected by this decision. But I think part of what I wanted to show in writing the book was that the quest to overturn Roe changed democracy in various ways for everyone, changed election spending in various ways for everyone, not just for people who can get pregnant, but for anybody who participates in our political system. And so what what I wanted to, to study was, you know, that this effort to get rid of Roe v. Wade won't just end with Roe v. Wade um, in terms of our other rights or in terms of reproductive health care. It also won't end with Roe v. Wade in terms of the way our democratic system works more broadly. Let's talk more about uh, former President Donald Trump, who you mentioned a moment ago. He's giving himself credit for the Supreme Court's decision in the abortion case and in other recent outcomes. What role exactly did he play in all of this? Well, he obviously played a significant role um, insofar as even when you have decades of work um, that have gone into this moment, uh, a lot of coincidences have to happen. A lot of things have to break the right way. Um, it in order for this to actually play out the right way um, from the standpoint of the anti-abortion movement. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg can't retire at a certain point. She has to wait until later and then pass away. Um, Merrick Garland's confirmation can't go through. Hillary Clinton can't win the Electoral College. And so obviously you would never have had a decision overruling Roe without all three of Donald Trump's nominees. Even two wouldn't have been enough to get us to this point. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, Trump does uh, deserve credit, but it's it's also obviously much more than just a single person. This is a, a broad social movement um, that's been working with the Federalist Society. It's been working with other conservative movements. So there's a much richer, messier history uh, in addition to Donald Trump. Professor, the uh, Illinois primary, that's tomorrow. And, and midterm elections, they're just a few months away. I wonder what you make of the political timing of this decision. Well, I mean, this is clearly a court that isn't worried about popular opinion, right? I mean, the court has seen the same polls we've seen about overruling Roe. Um, The court has seen the same polls we've seen about some of the laws that uh, anti-abortion states are passing, right? So not just the kinds of laws that enjoy popular support, like restrictions later in pregnancy. We're seeing things very early in pregnancy with no rape and incest exceptions. This is a court, I think, that quite clearly isn't worried about damage to its legitimacy and isn't worried about political ramifications and isn't really worried about popular opinion at all. And there, there are moments in the opinion where Justice Alito almost says exactly that. Uh, and so I think what that means um, essentially is that the, the court isn't worried about popular politics. The question really, I think, is what, whether voters will will demonstrate that the court made a mistake in that regard, right, that, that there is something that there is going to be a response to this. And it's not clear 
It's also not clear to me whether the response we're going to see will be immediate, right, Where the, whether this will kick in in 2022, because we know with Roe mm-hmm. that um, the anti-abortion response to Roe was not immediate, right? In 1975, this was not a big deal. Um, you know, Supreme Court co- nominees weren't asked about Roe. Politicians didn't talk a lot about Roe. So the progressive response to this could happen immediately um, in a voting way, or it could take a while. So I think um, we'll have to stay tuned to really know the answer to that. When it comes to the uh, the elections, though, uh, are you expecting Republicans to work this to their favor? They'll certainly try. I mean, the thing to emphasize here is as much as progressives are very upset about this, this is not where conservatives want to end up, right? Where conservatives want to end up is with something like fetal personhood, which would mean no legal abortion anywhere. So it would mean that if voters in Illinois want abortion to be legal, it wouldn't matter because abortion would be unconstitutional, full stop. So conservative voters are going to be motivated now, too. I think usually when someone quite literally loses a constitutional right, they'd be more motivated. I think there's a sense sometimes that when you win in the Supreme Court, um, you can get complacent. And I think that that may be Mm -hmm. happening with conservatives. But um, it's worth emphasizing this is not the end for conservatives. So they will likely be motivated um, as well. Well, speaking of more than half of U.S. states, they're expected to quickly move to ban abortion. As of this morning, Professor, at least 10 states have already done this, uh, including states that border Illinois, where here abortion does remain legal. Are you expecting legal battles around this issue moving forward? I am. Yeah, I think um, Illinois is likely to be at the center of some of these battles, in part because we've already seen some signs that Republican lawmakers in neighboring states are interested in preventing people from traveling to Illinois to get abortions, which right. is obviously very easy in some parts of Illinois. The the distance between you know East St. Louis um, and St. Louis, for example, is is shorter than it is to cross town in Chicago, right? So I think um, we'll see fights, for example, about whether states can prosecute doctors from out of state. I think Illinois lawmakers are likely to try to shield doctors in Illinois from those kinds of consequences. We're going to see questions raised about the constitutional right to travel, about what's called choice of law. So if Illinois says something is legal um, and Missouri says it's not, who gets to decide? And so as much as this Mm. decision doesn't change things for people seeking abortions in Illinois, it does put Illinois in the middle of potentially these questions of interstate conflict that we're likely to see unfold in the days and weeks ahead. That's very interesting. I mean, who would get to decide that? Right. Would... The answer is who knows, because right. I mean, we haven't. If you think about this, what can you think of a scenario where a state has said, if you go do something that's legal in that state, we're going to try to prosecute you right. for it in our state? That's yeah. that you can't think of anything. And so we have very little guidance from legal precedent on this. There are not a lot of historical examples we can look to because people just frankly haven't done this before. Mm-hmm. I feel like those um, in power so will find a, a way. Lot of uncertainty. Yeah, we're, we're living in a post-Roe America now. Uh, Justice Alito wrote in his majority opinion that uh, the court's decisions protecting contraception and same-sex marriage are not in jeopardy. What are your thoughts, though? Well, I think it's more complicated than that. I mean, first of all, everyone should probably know that the Supreme Court has issued disclaimers like this before and then um, taken them back. So, Usually when there is a disclaimer like this, it means the court is not going to do anything imminently to any of those rights. So I don't think anyone needs to worry about the court reversing or undoing those rights in the next year or two. But we also know that historically, when the Supreme Court has said this sort of thing, they often have violated their promise 
you know, a decade later, five years later. And we also know, of course, Justice Clarence Thomas, in a separate opinion, said the court should undo rights to same-sex marriage, birth control, and same-sex intimacy. And we know that the approach that Justice Alito laid out, the idea that the only rights we have are the rights that lawmakers in the 19th, late 19th century, right, would think we have, if that was true, of course, at that time, same-sex sex was a crime, same-sex marriage wasn't legal, interracial marriage was illegal, birth control was illegal, women couldn't vote. So, I mean, if that's our guideline for what rights we have, there's no reason to think the court wouldn't go further than abortion. The court tells us abortion is different. Abortion is the taking of a fetal life. They may stick to that. They may not. But I think if you're looking further down the line, you definitely have to wonder how long that this guarantee the court has given us will be good for. Mm-hmm. The justice also wrote, quote, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. What's your take on that? Well, I, again, I mean, I think the question is, whose constitution are we talking about here? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's worrisome to me that the beginning and end of our constitutional rights with this court is a, a, histor- a historical account that, as a historian, I don't find particularly good. It's pretty thin. He doesn't, court doesn't cite the best historians on the history it's supposedly narrating. But even if you just take that aside, the, the basic premise that the only rights we have are the rights that were determined by people at a time when most of us were not really enfranchised to be part of We the People. I'm not comfortable with that either. So uh, I think you know, the question of what rights we have more broadly, including the right to abortion, is something we all need to think a lot more about. Yeah. Well, leave us with a, a final thought here, Professor. The end of Roe, how, how is that going to impact American democracy overall? Well, I think that that's very much to be determined by the people listening to this, right? I mean, I think one lesson I had as a historian watching the aftermath of Roe is that very few people could have predicted how much American politics around abortion and American politics writ large would change in, the, in that, those 50 years. And I think it's very hard to predict the course of the backlash to Dobbs and how it could change American politics. So there's nothing, I mean, people will use language around the Supreme Court decision like inevitable and written in stone. And I would say that as a historian, I don't see anything as inevitable. I think what people want American democracy to look like and how this this moment, the elimination of this constitutional right motivates people is something I think a lot of us will have a say in. Mary Ziegler is a professor of law at the University of California, Davis. She's also a legal historian and author of Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Thank you, Professor. Thanks for having me. While Republicans are celebrating the reversal of Roe v. Wade, Democrats are urging voters to take action at the polls. And it's a message that's already resonating with some of you. The Supreme Court that only has a 27% confidence rating now, is saying that they're competent, but the court that had a high rating 50 years ago was incompetent, both making a decision on the same issue of justice in the Constitution. For so many of my friends who, as they move down the ballot, write off or don't mark on the judicial election because they don't think they're important to them, we need to be really paying attention to our judiciary candidates as they bubble up onto higher positions. It would only be fair that the Supreme Court justices 
were elected by popular vote for a period of four years. I mean, what's the point of just joining together and everybody going home and nothing happening after these protests? What is the point? We need to do more than just show up, chant some words, and then everybody goes home and we move on with our lives. So what can Democrats do to protect abortion rights at the federal and state levels? And what will their strategy mean for the Illinois primary tomorrow and midterm elections across the country in November? Lynn Sweet, columnist and Washington bureau chief of the Chicago Sun-Times, brings us her take. First, how are you processing the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, since we knew it was coming, the uh, surprise factor was up because the draft was leaked. Yeah. It was just a matter of when. It was a matter of when, and we knew that the court was coming to an end of its session. So, uh, you know, so this is here. So nothing, everything actually has unfolded predictably since then. Democratic uproar, Republicans taking a victory lap. Yeah. Well, what what was different about the opinion that was released Friday compared with the... uh, the I'm not sure. Actually, I'm I'm not sure the people who... uh, who have scrubbed it, saw some key passages different. And why is there a lot to scrub? It's quite thick. Well, the opinion that came down is in the version I looked at, and depending on the PDF, I looked at a 213-page yeah. uh, version. But it doesn't matter. Here's Let's keep our eye on the ball. Whether or not and how the draft opinion changed the final is what we could say for our Tremutic level discussion yeah. on that because this decision is what is here now. And uh, the bottom line is, as you've been discussing on the show and I heard on uh, some previous guests. Yeah. Well, speaking of previous guests, we discussed earlier, Lynn, how anti-abortion rights supporters successfully pushed the courts to the right and uh, influenced the Republican Party to take on their cause. How come abortion rights activists haven't found the same success? Well, they were not a single issue. So there were, it's a, there's always been a more uh, broader agenda among Democrats and the base. Uh, women's rights, abortion rights, gay rights uh, that has, trans, uh, that has uh, evolved into LGBT. Q, and I, forgive me if I'm missing one on it, but in all seriousness, the Democratic agenda had more things in the basket. The rise of the right started with almost its sole focus on abortion, yeah. from grassroots to legal challenges to massive uh, fundraising on this. So the question I would think so many people may be asking now is why didn't the Democrats, when they held the White House, when they held House and Senate, why didn't they just make into federal law the abortion provisions that were struck down? And the answer is there weren't enough Democrats to do it. I know that sounds maybe confusing to our listeners, but you have never had a hot-button issue as hot as abortion, and among Democrats who represent areas where abortion rights may conflate with their Republican opponent in the swing district. But here is the other point when I sometimes try to do, as in my column, decoder, we are where we are. 
And we know that the rise of the anti-abortion forces did so well because they also focused just on the legal challenge. They never they, – they had some success, of course, through the years in what is called the Hyde Amendment, named after a former Illinois congressman, Henry Hyde, to make sure that federal funds were never used for abortion. And mm-hmm. Democrats went along with that to keep peace among themselves. And it, when – when you had a court made up of who you haven't made up, uh, short of having that law, this stuff in place, you kind of knew what may be coming. Yeah. Well, after the ruling came out Friday, uh, President Joe Biden was very quick to address the court's decision. Vice President Kamala Harris responded to the news during her visit here in Illinois on Friday as well. Here's a little bit of what they had to say. We need to restore the protections of Roe as law of the land. We need to elect officials who will do that. This fall, Roe is on the ballot. With your vote, you can act. And you have the final word. So this is not over. Is their messaging effective? I don't know. It's too soon. And Vice President Harris made those remarks in Plainfield, Illinois, on Friday. There is nothing you could do at the moment. When you say the fight's not over, you're really talking about the midterm. We in Illinois have a primary tomorrow. That's not what she was talking about mm-hmm. uh, uh, on this. And the big, big issue in the midterm is can Democrats take the House? Can Democrats take the Senate again? And the abortion ruling has... If you want to get into it now, that's where the political ramifications are, though. There's basically a bleak outlook because even if Democrats keep the House and Senate, which, as I speak, is a long shot, the idea that they would be able to pass legislation codifying abortion rights is still going to be tough given that you have no guarantee that you would have all 50 Democratic senators if that's what the Senate remains on it. You know, there seems to be, um, just thinking of, of, of the Democrats, there seems to be a larger disconnect between Democratic leaders and their supporters. Some voters have expressed frustration with um, the lack of action on abortion rights and um, other issues, too, like gun control. Well, um, let me, where do you get this from? Now, I say this with all respect, looking at you, so people, you know, I'm, I'm being a little provocative here. Yeah. But we're, I'm smiling at Sasha. I hear this, too, from the left, and it's not true. Biden just passed and signed into law the first gun control legislation in years. Is it everything Democrats wanted? No. But you're saying uh, they're more aligned than is it, being reported. I No, it is being reported. It is absolutely reported. I hear this from the far left that where are they? Well, they're trying. It's not read, read all the bucket list that was in the Build Back Better Uh, Who hasn't read about uh, efforts among Democrats, especially when you talk about immigration? Yeah. Who invented the Dreamer movement? Do you know? I could tell you. Senator Dick Durbin. He, one day, in his office, a young woman came in who I think was at Loyola and DePaul and realized that to get whatever she was trying to do to sign up for school or student aid, uh, she needed to be a citizen and... All of a sudden, he realized she wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment the dream movement was born, okay? Yeah. It's not like people aren't trying. It's not like 
you know, the answer is arithmetic. You need 50 senators on most issues, on many issues, 60 on others. Uh, I just don't get where whoever you're quoting, your anonymous griper, where do they think that the Biden administration isn't trying? You could say they're not effective, but it isn't true that these things are not on the agenda. They are. I want to get back to the primary, which is tomorrow, which we've mentioned. Do you expect that this reversal of Roe is going to drive more voters to the polls? No, because it's a party primary. Okay. And if I could be useful to everyone listening who has not voted yet, in Illinois, you just pick a ballot for a a party and you can only pick one. So if you're in a republic, if you're a Republican and you pick a Republican ballot, your choice is among Republicans. And there is no local race that I know of where you have a anti-abortion Democrat who is in a serious contention. The exception is an Illinois one in Congress. Uh, Reverend Chris Butler is the rare anti-abortion Democrat running. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I have not, and uh, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but it is my impression that in in the state house and state Senate races, I don't think we have any abortion rights Republican running where this issue will be uh, Mm -hmm. defining. You know, thinking of Democratic challenges, though, I'm I'm concerned about that low approval ratings that President Biden yes. has right now. High inflation yes. seems to be knocking him down as well. We're getting closer to these midterm elections that we brought up earlier in November. Are you expecting that Democrats will ramp up their offense right in key races? Well, they'll maybe they, by focusing on abortion. Well, here, here's here's the uh, bittersweet part of this of this abortion ruling coming down, Sasha, is that Democrats didn't have a lot going for them going into the midterms. Everything you said plus more. That's true. COVID, inflation, the war in Ukraine, uh, gasoline price. Yeah. If there's one economic indicator that everyone understands, that's it. You know, we could talk about unemployment rates, other numbers. People drive by their gas stations, see the price. So uh, in terms of a motivating factor, a... uh, to get people who are low propensity voters out, who, if you get them, might be Democrat or Republicans. Remember, the fury is on the Democratic side because they lost something. Usually in politics, the party that lost something can mobilize over it easier than somebody who gains something. Right, And that's what I think you're talking about. And I do think we will see that in local and national races, especially in Illinois in the governor's race. Could that strategy also help Republicans? Well, not in Illinois, I don't think, because the uh, now that we have abortion on the table, yeah. swing voters, particularly females, uh, are going to be the sought-after group. We, we say this almost every election, but this time I say it with more certainty because Abortion is an issue that I'm guessing, we don't have data yet, we haven't gone out and talked to people, but I'm guessing will be a priority because it's something that women had a choice two weeks ago and don't now. So maybe you think the Democrats are wrong in their approach to inflation, keeping gas prices low, how they handle COVID, et cetera, taxation policies. But uh, women know that... in that if they they might have lost something. In Illinois, though, because of this uh, abortion rights state yeah. that we have and the governor and all the leaders, 
uh, things in Illinois for the women who live here will not change. And as I'm sure you've been reporting, yeah. Illinois is braced to become uh, a state welcoming people who need that. A, women a who safe need haven, they yes. say. Yeah. That's Lynn Sweet, columnist and Washington Bureau Chief of the Chicago Sun-Times. Thank you for joining oh, us in thank studio. Thank you so much. That's it for today's Reset. Keep checking in with us for conversations about the reversal of Roe v. Wade. We drop an episode every weekday afternoon and sometimes on the weekends. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.